0: Welcome to In the Middle of It. I'm Amy Kelly, and I am passionate about supporting you on the front lines with your middle schoolers. As a former middle school teacher myself and a parent to two teens of my own, I get the roller coaster season that you're in. That crazy making, joy inspiring, incredibly fun, and sometimes frustrating ride of loving the teens in your life. Each week, I'm gonna be sharing actionable stories and strategies to encourage and equip you on your journey. If you're a parent or a teacher who's looking to forge a connection that lets your teens know they are seen, heard, and loved, and if you are ready to show up as the grownup they need, you are in absolutely the right place. Let's get started. Hey there, I'm Amy, also known as The Ish Girl, and I am so excited to welcome you to today's episode. Now, I am doing one of my favorite things today, which is talking about a book that I recently read. But before I get into it, I really wanna set up the context for why I chose this particular book. So I'm going to start with a story, one from 2013. And that was a year that was particularly difficult for my family and I, to say the least. It was one of those years and seasons when if anything could go wrong, it did. And it started out in March of 2013 when my father-in-law Fell and had to go into the hospital, and he never came out. He got really sick while he was there after a hip surgery, and then he passed away that May. And that's kind of when things really started to kick into gear because um, that year, both my husband and I ended up in the hospital me with heart issues, and Philip with. Um, with appendicitis, like the whole dramatic thing where he had pain and we had to take him into the hospital and it was really quick. So that was really traumatic. And then also um, in September of that year, I was in a horrible wreck, like really bad. It totaled my car. It was one of those things where the firefighters afterwards said that I was just really fortunate to have walked away from it, and the other person was as well. So that was really traumatic. And then the kicker came just nine days later. We were headed out of town, my husband and I. We were actually in his mom's car, because again, mine had been totaled, so we were borrowing hers. And we were driving out to a small Texas town on a To visit with some family, and as we were going about um, 45 miles an hour down the road, a tree fell on our car. Like, I kid you not, like a big, huge, ginormous tree that was dead. There were no leaves or branches on it, it was just a tree trunk. It literally fell on the car. And if it had been 10 seconds sooner, like earlier it would have killed us. If it had been 10 seconds later, it would have killed us. So that year was just super duper traumatic. And I'm sharing that because I kinda wanna paint a picture of what happens when you experience trauma. Because as you can imagine, after all of that, I had some serious PTSD every time I got into a car, whether I was driving or somebody else was driving. And to this day, and what that was almost six years ago, um, I still flinch quite a bit in the car. And you know what I'm talking about, like, and my husband gets so irritated, but he understands because something will happen and I'll just get a little skittish. And it it's one of those like, <gasps> you know, that gasping thing and he freaks out and the kids freak out. And anyway, all that to say, it's taken me a while to kind of build back to really being able to be in the moment in the car and not have those gasp, flinch reactions. So I share this because I think that we can all agree that the world changed in substantial ways after 9-11, okay? And I know that that's a huge segue there, like that's a huge shift in topic, but what I would say here, and the reason that I'm tying the two together is that I would say as a nation, we were traumatized by 9-11, right? And I think our collective fear, and I include myself in, in, in this statement that I'm about to make, our fear level just skyrocketed, right? Like it was huge. And I would especially say that in kind of a knee-jerk reaction, that kind of gasp reaction, that a wall of mistrust and suspicion rose up specifically between Muslim Americans and I would say pretty much everyone else. Now, That may be a sweeping statement, but I really do think it's safe to say that most non-Muslim people flinched, even just a little tiny, tiny bit, when they ran into a person who wore a hijab or who was someone who was clearly Middle Eastern in those days and weeks and months following those attacks. And while I think that that knee-jerk reaction is natural, right? Um... That doesn't mean that the actions that you take afterwards are. And here's what I mean. So the issue isn't really that flinch. It's in how you look at what that flinch is and how you choose your actions and what you're going to do and say and the attitudes that you're going to have afterwards. Like for me, when I went through those wrecks and I would have and still have those flinch reactions, I could tell myself, you know what? You're okay. Statistically, getting in another wreck is, it's very low. Um, I, I, You know, you're being just a little bit jumpy and it's okay to be aware and alert. It's not okay to be so fearful or assume that we're going to get into a wreck, right? Well, the same thing I feel like is something um, that translates to what I'm talking about with that flinch after 9-11. And in fact, I have been reading this really great book. Um, one of the girls in my critique group, Emily Rob- Robertson, she's actually been on a previous episode. I'll put a, I've will put put a link to that in my show notes, but she recommended this book um, to me and it's called White Fragility. It's by Robin J. D'Angelo. And I'm just gonna kind of share some of the thoughts that Robin shares in the book because I think it really bears um, a lot of thought, I think, to, it, it, to be able to let it marinate and think about what it means for you, where you are in your life, in your season right now. So here's what she says. She points out that if we can understand racism as a system into which we've been socialized versus versus something like, I think a lot of times people Would describe a racist, and she says this as being defined as bad people who intend to hurt others because of their race. So she's saying instead of looking at racism that way, looking at it as if it is a system into which we've been socialized. So it's not necessarily that you're a bad person per se, Um, of course not, but what she's trying to point out is that we are in this holistic system that sometimes we don't even realize, especially as white people, if you are white, I realize not all of my listeners are, and I'm grateful for that. So anyway, back to my point, I think when we can receive feedback because we're open to understanding that racism is part of our system doesn't mean that I'm a bad person. It just means I'm part of the system and I might have some ignorance as to how attitudes, actions, policies, whatever you want to say, can be very hurtful and harmful or racially problematic. So I'm tying that to what I'm talking about today because it's so important as you listen to about this book that I'm about to tell you about. Because when we can learn to recognize our flinches, right? Or what she calls those valuable but painful moments where we realize that we are having one of those negative racial patterns, then we can really begin to engage in uh, being more self-aware, engage in relationship building, and really engaging in actual anti-racist actions, right? Okay, so I lay all that out because not after 9-11, people acted on their flinches by persecuting and harassing those they felt were other. And that is not a pretty truth, right? Like it is not a pretty truth, but it is the truth. Now I will say on the flip side, I also remember hearing stories on the other side of things where people went past their flinch and they reached into their own humanity and they tried to see people as individuals worthy of value, worthy of respect. And I remember one story in particular where a group of women were going to the grocery store with their Muslim neighbors because they felt like they could be a shield and a protection so that those women were not being persecuted as they just went about their daily business. And um, I thought that was beautiful because It's not that people weren't afraid. It's that people chose to step past that fear and into relationship, right? The reason that I'm talking about this as well, the whole point of this really, is that I want to model and instill in my teens a compassion and an empathy for others that really outweighs their fear of the unknown that brands them in the idea that there is a common humanity in all of us. And regardless of what our differences are, regardless of what differences they may perceive. And I really want to model a mindset that is open to correction, especially in moments when our attitudes or actions are called out by someone as racially problematic. And again, going back to my friend, Emily, when we were talking about the book, White Fragility, she pointed out, and I wholeheartedly agree, I don't think that it is up to people who are Middle Eastern or people who are African American or people who are of whatever color to correct us on things. I think um, that might be where it starts, but once I'm aware and informed and educated, it's my job as a white person to help correct and educate. And correct sounds so strong because I certainly don't, don't want to put myself in the role of I'm going to go around and correct people, but I do want to be able, especially with the people that I'm closest to, to say, hey, let's think about what the conversation we just had, let's think about what you just said. Do you, do you realize like when you say that, here's how it's perceived? Or do you realize that fact that you just shared is maybe a little bit skewed from a privileged perspective? So I, I think what M said and what I agree with is that we have to have each other's backs on this and help each other out and correct one another and learn together, right? Okay. Now, I would have to say though, too, that I am the first to admit that I have a high level of ignorance when it comes to the frustrations and the indignity, excuse me, and the indignities that people of color endure on a daily basis. And I wanna learn and I am actively engaged in developing relationships and becoming educated about those things that right now I'm unaware of. But just because I'm open to that doesn't mean that I don't make unintentional blunders, right? Like that's what happens when you are ignorant of things, right? So again, I have to be willing to be corrected if things are going to change. And that's what I want to model for my teens is that being open to correction and receiving it with grace rather than anger or pride is going to um, is gonna bring about better relationships and better understanding, right? Okay, all that to say, the book that I'm talking about this week really is just such a great example of a way to step out and try to learn more about things that you might not know about. And the book that I'm talking about is A Very Large Expansive Sea by Tahara Mafi. And it is a gripping story about a Muslim teen navigating high school just a year after 9-11 and it really reveals in brutal detail what it was like to feel other in the aftermath of that national tragedy to endure um, she really did endure relentless bullying and bigotry at its worst right so while this book was raw and real it was also so beautiful and revelatory and healing i felt like and what i loved most about it was it really pulled me into shireen's mind and shireen and i hope i'm saying that the right way um she's the main character she's the girl in the story and you're really inside her head and her voice is so authentic it's so relatable And it was so easy to identify with her anger and her bitterness and her hurt. And truly, I could not put it down. And it's really, it was easy for me to see why it was put on the long list for the National Book Award in 2018. Now, to explain a little bit about the story, Shireen is starting a new school in a new town, and it's at the beginning of her sophomore year. And she is just very wary and jaded and weary, I would say, weary and weary, because she's moved several times in her 16 years. It's her third high school in two years. And each move along the way is because her parents want to kind of level up. They're getting better jobs. They're moving their kids to better neighborhoods, better schools to really provide for them in the future. And they want to give them the best opportunities possible. So, As you might imagine, in addition to facing all the many challenges that come along with moving from neighborhoods and schools to a new place as a teenager and like making new friends and joining new groups, You layer in Shireen having to navigate the fear and the bigotry in the aftermath of 9-11. And there are so many really great issues that come up in this book that are not only fantastic to kind of segue into conversations with your teens, but they're also really great for self-reflection, I I thought too. So I'm going to jump into those issues now. And I do want to let you know that I have provided a list of questions that you can use for, um, for a discussion with your teens or with a book club or whatever you wanna do, I have that list of questions. It's on my website, it's also in the show notes. You can link to it at theishgirl.com forward slash EP42 and you'll see there where you can sign up to grab those questions. So I hope you are able to go and do that. All right, so starting off with those issues. Um, the first one would be academic pressure. Okay, these aren't in any particular order other than alphabetical, so just follow along with me. So that first issue, again, is academic pressure. Now, Shireen's parents want her to do well in school, but she doesn't really see college in her future because of their, um, their financial constraints, and then also because she's just really shut down and, and is having a hard time envisioning a future because she's just so um, bitter about what she's been experiencing. Now, the other character that's really important in the book, his name is Ocean, and he is a student at the school that Shireen is starting, and he um, has a mom and a basketball coach who really want him to play basketball in college. Like, he's this super star, just completely amazing basketball player, and he doesn't realize that one of the reasons that his mom wants him to get a scholarship is because she has spent all the money that his grandfather left the two of them um, on herself. And so her mom is counting on him getting a scholarship so that he can go to school. And for most of the book, he doesn't know that. Okay. So you have all that academic pressure going on. And then also there's the issue of body choice. And I wasn't sure exactly how to phrase that issue, but body choice is what I went with. And here's what I mean by that. On her first day of school, um, Shireen counts 17 stupid comments about wearing her hijab because she does choose to wear the traditional headscarf of Muslim women. And she does a really great job of explaining why she does that. We're going to get to that in a second. But she talks about because of that choice, because she's wearing it, everything that she endures just this first day of school and Obviously it got to so many that she started, you know, counting because she was like, are you kidding me? Like, this is crazy. But their comments, like everything from, are you hiding a bomb under there? Or maybe she's secretly bald. And what she calls them is regular injections of poisons that she's gifted from strangers. Like, so she is, she's really sharp. She's a really smart girl and very, um, she's very, has that sharp wit. So, okay. And she talks about that enduring that as the very worst part of choosing to wear her headscarf. The thing that she likes best about wearing her hijab is that teachers cannot see her listening to music. And I love how she describes what music does for her. Um, I myself love music. I'll probably be talking more about that on the show as the weeks go by, but she loves music. And here's how she describes what music does for her, which I just love. All right, she says, Music seemed to steady me like a second skeleton. I leaned on it when my own bones were too shaken to stand. So Shireen chooses to wear a hijab very deliberately. And I love the way she describes her choice. She says, I dressed the way I did, not because I was trying to be a nun, but because it felt good and because it made me feel less vulnerable in general, like I wore kind of armor every day. It was a personal preference. People struggled to believe this because people struggled to believe women in general. It was one of the greatest frustrations of my life. I just thought that was super profound. People struggled to believe her because they struggled to believe women in general. I thought that was a very telling statement about her. So, during the storm that overtakes um, Shireen and Ocean because they're dating, and I'll talk about that later, someone actually throws food at her face and she goes to the bathroom to, um, to clean herself off and it has gotten all over her headscarf. It's gotten all over her face. So she takes her scarf off and she's kind of washing it out. She's washing her face off. And another student comes in, a girl comes in and takes a picture of her without her headscarf on. And you know where this is going, right? Like totally puts it out to social media. It goes viral in their school. And Truthfully, by that point in the book, that was so traumatic and such an invasion that uh, I mean, it made me feel sick inside just heard Shireen describing how she felt about that and how exposed and violated she felt with it. So I thought that was, um, I thought Tahira Mafi did a really great job describing that. Which leads us right into the next issue because I would definitely say that that incident was bullying. And really, throughout the whole book, Shireen paints a picture of the daily constant struggle of people either shunning her, like they ignore her and act like she doesn't exist, or they actively harass her, you know, and not, not always purposefully, I think. I think there's some people who maybe are truly curious about her and about her beliefs and who she is, but she's, again, she's so jaded, she's so wary of people, and she's so prickly that she can't receive it as just ignorant questions of someone who's trying to learn. She just takes it as really dumb questions that she's really tired of having to answer and listen to. So she even talks about, and this leads us into the next section, the next issue, which is Friendship, and here's something that she said at the beginning of the book that I thought was so interesting because coming from the privileged perspective that I have, especially when talking to my teens and when they were younger too, like in elementary school, like really encouraging them to stand up for kids who were being picked on and uh, having the courage to go and be their friends and and that kind of thing. Well, here is what Shireen says in the book that I just thought, oh my gosh, like, yeah, that's what it's like to be on the other side of it. So she says, I hated the pathetic soul-secking effort it took to finally make a single friend brave enough to be sit next to me in public. I just thought, wow, like that is so hard to, because of course she knew like it was taking that other kid being super brave to come and sit with her or try to be friends with her. So anyway, I thought that was interesting. And then she also talks about girls only wanted to be her friend because of her older brother. Um, So they would try to be her friend and then they'd drop her once. They either got her brother's attention or he wasn't interested in them. And I'm going to talk more about him later because that was a really interesting kind of juxtaposition between the two of them. Okay. So I'm going to add to the friendship part of things. And talk about also that she really does become friends with her brother's group of friends because he um, he's just a year ahead of her in school and he invites her to be part of a break, break dancing club or team that he is starting and so she gets to be friends with these guys several several of them are people of color as well and in fact one of them Jacoby. He really sees her and he recognizes her pain because as an African-American, he's experienced some of the same situations. And this is what he tells her. Just try to be happy. It's the one thing these jerks can't stand. So she's really starting to open up a little bit from being inside her closed shell And as she makes friends with her brother's friends, she gets a little bit more comfortable actually talking to people even. And she's really perplexed. Like it's puzzling to her when their team, their little breakdancing team, competes in the school talent show and they win. And then everybody just thinks they're amazing and awesome and great. And that makes her even a, a little bit bitter as well because she's like, this is ridiculous. Why do they like us now and not before? And she thinks about how fickle people are. So that part's really interesting. Now, as far as the issue of discrimination and stereotyping, Sharon is, Shireen is tired and annoyed by the assumptions that people make and the questions that they ask her, like whether or not she's forced to wear her hijab. I think I talked about that a second ago. So it gets even worse, the discrimination and the stereotyping once she and Ocean start dating. And I have to give a little background to this. Like she really truly does not know that he's this huge basketball star. And so once she figures it out, they're kind of already starting this relationship and she wants to back out because she is positive that people are going to react horribly and Ocean tells her, no, I don't care what people think. I don't care what people say. And she just keeps either trying to tell him or she's having thoughts of he has no idea what it's going to be like. Like he doesn't understand the sacrifices he's going to have to make and what he's going to have to endure just because he wants to date me. And she even has that horrible little voice in her head saying like, you're not worth all the trouble. So that's really... big part of the book as well. So, okay. It gets really bad when she and Ocean start dating and it's surprisingly, it's surprisingly not just the kids, it's the adults too, particularly Ocean's mom and his coach. And eventually Shireen's worst fears and her predictions come true. Only People aren't angry with her and aren't attacking her, they're actually angry with Ocean and attacking him. And there's this whole big thing where the community is worried, wants to call a meeting because they're worried that he's colluding with terrorists, and the whole thing is just sad and ridiculous. So, As they're going through that, she recognizes that she'd stopped caring about school a few years ago, right around the time she was old enough to realize that caring about a school, its teachers, its students, its walls and doors and many hallways nearly always ended in heartbreak. So I just stopped. I stopped remembering things people, faces, and in time, they all blurred together. So while she's walking through this and these people are all a blur, for Ocean, it's different because these are the people he's grown up with. These are the adults that he's trusted. And so it's really challenging for him. And in the end, Shireen ends up breaking up with him for a little while because his mom comes and talks to her. The coach comes and talks to her and really harass her to break up with him. Because they know they're not getting through to Ocean. He's digging his heels in and saying, I don't care. This is what I want to do. So let's go into that dating relationship a little bit more as the next issue. So Shireen is very prickly. I've explained that. She's very suspicious with everyone. But she is especially suspicious of Ocean, because he's the first person who's really pursued trying to connect with her, trying to talk to her, and and she doesn't know what to do with it. Like, she's just so used to, like, pushing people away, pushing people away, that she just has no idea what she can do to make this guy go away, and nothing that she's doing is working. And again, she's reluctant to date him, because she knows what the fallout is going to look like, even if he doesn't believe her, or even if he thinks that he doesn't, that he wouldn't care about it. And again, she eventually succumbs and they do start dating. And then everything that she predicted starts happening. And I will say just as a side note that Tahereh Mafi does a really great job as far as their dating relationship is concerned of really showing us how they're, are, they're feeling all the feels of that first kind of romantic relationship. She does a really great job with that. Like there are electric touches and lightning bolts and world rocking kisses. And it's all appropriate, age appropriate for sure. But she just did a really good job with that. And like I said, the inevitable fallout happens. And it's really, really, really hard for Ocean to wrap his head around the way people are reacting, right? So she tries to tell him, she says, I tried to tell him that the bigots and racists had always been there. And he said he'd honestly never seen them like this, that he never thought they could be like this. And I said, yes, I know. I said, that's how privilege works. And so to me, that goes back to what I was talking about with that book, White Privilege. Sometimes we just, we don't see things, but the reason we don't see them is because we're in a place of privilege. And I thought it was really great how she lovingly points that out to him. Okay, so talking about their parents and the relationships that they have with them. So for Shireen, Shireen loves her parents and she respects them. And she even says, like a quote from the book is, they're actually pretty great as far as human beings went. But she also knows that, and this is another quote, they had zero sympathy for what they considered were my unremarkable struggles. My life had been so easy in comparison to their own upbringing that they generally couldn't understand why I didn't wake up singing every moment, <laughs> which I thought, yeah, how could they not? Like this is this is a man and a woman. Like she describes some of the things that her parents went through growing up in Iran and and it was horrific. So of course, being bullied to them, you know, well here I'll I'll read another quote here that I think really <laughs> Really shares it. I loved my parents. I really did. But I never talked to them about my own pain. It was impossible to compete for sympathy with a mother and a father who thought I was lucky to attend a school where the teachers only said mean things to you and didn't actually beat the bleep out of you, right? So so you can kind of see where while she loves her parents, she knows that they love her. She's not really getting a whole lot of support at home from them as far as the bullying and the things that she's experienced at school. And really, her parents are not involved in the day-to-day of their lives. And I think she even says she feels like her parents love she and her brother, but they don't necessarily like them. And they're really more concerned with their with Shireen and her brother Naveed's grades and making sure they have the best opportunities possible. And there is this beautiful moment between Shireen and her dad. And she, she really describes her dad and the way he reads poets and philosophers. And it's just such a learned man and a gentle, quiet man. And at one point she asks her dad how to know if she's made a good decision. And this is what he tells her. And I, I again, I just thought this was beautiful. If the decision you've made has brought you closer to humanity, then you've done the right thing. So I just thought that was beautiful. I'm just going to leave that right there because what can you add to that, right? Like, that's just amazing. Okay. Now with Ocean, um, his mom just completely neglects him and his dad's not in the picture. Um, His mom will just be gone for days at a time and doesn't really pay attention to him. And really the only way she connects with him is through basketball. And she really doesn't start getting involved in his day-to-day life until he starts dating Shireen. And at first it's it's solely to get him to stop dating her, but then later on, she does kind of come around and try to get to know Shireen and support the two of them. So now other family relationships with sibling relationships, Ocean is an only child. So we won't talk about him in this context, but with Shireen, she has an older brother Naveed, who ironically, in comparison to what she suffered through, um, he is very popular and very well-liked. And here's what she says about that. There were two big differences between me and my brother. First, that he was extremely handsome. And second, that he didn't walk around wearing a metaphorical neon sign, nailed to his forehead, flashing, caution, terrorist approaching. So she really, she feels a little bit resentful, but she is so... Um, Strong and sticking with her choice to wear a hijab, that even her brother's ease and popularity and the way that he's able to navigate through their school life, that doesn't even persuade her to change her actions, which is phenomenal, especially for a sixteen-year-old. I think um, that she stays true to who who she is and, and what she wants to do. But I will say, it's it's interesting in the book how he stands up for her. Um, In fact, I'm going to talk about an incident in a minute where he really did save her life. Um, In this particular snapshot of the year that we have of them together, he's really trying to include her in his world. And so he invites her into the breakdancing club and he shares his friends with her and tries to really help her have an easier time. Like there's a point where he calls her during the school day and like at the very beginning when they've just started going to this new school and is like, where are you eating lunch? And she's in the bathroom or the library or something. And he's like, get out of there, come eat with me, you know, that kind of thing. So they have a really great relationship, which I loved seeing that. Okay. As far as teacher-student relationships went, I thought it was really interesting, especially for all you teachers out there who might be listening to this. I felt like they did an interesting job of portraying both a teacher who was very prejudiced and um, just kind of a jerk, and then another teacher who was trying really hard to connect with Shireen and with his class but just kind of missed the mark in the beginning. So let's talk about that for a second. In the beginning, we see a teacher treating her like she's a complete idiot. So she's late to her first class, which is English honors. She goes in, he's in the middle of kind of welcoming the class and he stops and he tells her, you must be in the wrong place. And she's like, no, I'm in the right place. And he's like, you know, this is English honors. And she's like, yes, I know that it's English honors. And he just keeps on and on, like implying, like, you're not supposed to be here you're probably not even an American. English can't be your first language. And finally she snaps and she basically says, I speak, per you know, blanking perfect English. And so of course she gets sent to the principal's office. She gets a talking to and she, she has to go to detention. So all of that unfairness to her is just like another nail in the coffin of, okay, life sucks for me right now. So that happens. But then on the other end of things, we see a teacher who, he, like I said, he really has great intentions, but he doesn't really have boundaries or any kind of regard for, for her feelings, I would say. But he does actually apologize after an incident that happens in class, and he really tries to work through it with her. And... He tells her in this discussion, like he's called her in, she wants to drop the class. He really wants her to stay in the class. And this is what he says. I thought this was such a profound conversation. He tells her that he wants her to stay to kind of guide them and to help them learn. But she is angry about that. And he tells her he gets it and that it's her not, not her job to educate the ignorant. And she, this is what she says. No, it's not. I'm tired as hell, Mr. Jordan. I've been trying to educate people for years, and it's exhausting. I am tired of being patient with bigots. I'm tired of trying to explain why I don't deserve to be treated like a piece of, and I'll use the word crap, that's not the word that she used, all the time. I'm tired of begging everyone to understand that people of color aren't all the same that we don't all believe the same things or feel the same things or experience the world the same way. I'm just, I'm sick and tired of trying to explain to the world why racism is bad. Okay. Why is that my job? Again, I just thought that was such a strong statement to make. And especially in thinking about this being a young adult book and that our kids are reading this and how profound that is. Like it is not a kid's job to teach the world not to be bigoted or racist or cruel. So I thought that was really great. And he receives that really well from her. I do have to say that he takes that and he absorbs it. And he's like, you're right. Like, you're absolutely right. He still wants her to come back. And because he agrees with her, because of how he handles that situation, she does go back into the classroom. So I thought that was that was a really great kind of snapshot of Sometimes, what it can look like to just want to do the right thing and to try to be doing the right thing and to really get it wrong, but again, to be open to correction, to learning, and to seeing things a different way. The next thing that I'm going to talk about is the trauma that was in the book. And there wasn't a whole lot of time spent on it, but I did want to mention it here on the podcast. She does do a flashback to a couple of weeks after 9 11, and she's walking home from school, she's wearing a hijab. And she is attacked by two boys that she goes to school with. And they are literally like, they take her headscarf, they wrap it around her neck. They're trying to choke her with it. They're kind of banging her head on the concrete. And she knows without a doubt that they would have killed her, except for her brother heard from some friends at school that these two boys were planning it. So it was totally premeditated. These boys planned to do it. Naveed heard about it got the cops and ran and found her in her walk on her way home and was able to save her from death. Unfortunately, nothing happened to the boys and the police officers and in kind of, I guess, a lame attempt to try to be helpful, basically tell her you might want to change what you're wearing Um, You need to be more careful. If, you know, if anybody's trying to hurt you, let us know. But they're really ineffective and that nothing happens to those boys. And what her response to that is, is I don't understand how anyone could be so violently angry with me for something I hadn't done so much so that they would feel justified in assaulting me in broad daylight. And I don't want to understand. I'm kind of with her. I don't want to try to understand that, how people can get to that point of violence. And, and I'm reading through my notes here and, and what I see here, what one of the police officers said to her was wearing that hijab was really just asking for it and making herself a target. So really kind of that whole blaming the victim thing. As you can tell, this book really affected me profoundly, um, mainly because it drew me into the story that gave me a clearer picture of the injustices that went on in that time frame right after 9/11. And I would even say um, are still happening now. In fact, I am including in my show notes, there's a link to a video and to at least one article, maybe two, Um, about the persecution that people of the Muslim faith are experiencing here in the United States, which I don't know about you guys, but that breaks my heart. It's not what I want. It's not the kind of America that I want my kids to live in. I hope it's not the kind that you want your kids to live in either. And regardless of what your politics are, regardless of where you land on issues, discrimination in any form or capacity isn't okay, right? Like, I think we can all agree on that we can all agree on that. So, okay, again, I love this story because it really gave me that clear picture and it personalized it. I think when, when we can see someone's story, when we can read someone's experience, it really gives us a different perspective on things and it really helps us kind of research and explore Things that we may be ignorant to, and I really do think that personalization piece of things, um, when we have personal knowledge of someone, it's so much harder to make sweeping generalizations. Novels so often take what is general and really help us make specific because it introduces us to characters and to people who are walking through things that we will probably never walk through, but we can live inside their skin for a little bit, and I love that. Now, as a parent and as a former teacher. There is something, and I thought I would share just this little tidbit with you, this little nugget. There's something I try to do when I hear my teens making a generalization, and it's something that I learned from someone so long ago, I don't remember what the source of it is, but this is what the strategy is, and it's the name to strategy. So when I hear a blanket statement being made about any group or whatever, I really challenge my kids or anyone else who I hear doing it to name two people that they know personally who fit that wide description. And often that's completely impossible. They don't know two people who fit that description, which is kind of the whole point, right? So the name two strategy. Now, I highly, highly, highly encourage you to read A Very Large Expansive C and talk to your teen about it. And like I said before, I provided questions that you can use to have those discussions. Um, you can get that on my website at theishgirl.com forward slash EP42. And I really, really would love to hear how those conversations go. You can leave me a comment on that webpage, or you can leave me a message through Facebook or through Instagram. And there are also links to those in my show notes as well. But also, I would highly encourage you to sign up for my weekly email because not only do I share exclusive content, there stories and things that I don't share anywhere else, but you can also just hit reply and respond back to me on those and let me know how these discussions are going with your kiddos. And I am super anxious to hear how your talk has gone with this. Again, you can check that out in the show notes. And just to let you know, like this week's email is all about my own personal experience on the day of 9-11 when my husband and I were living just outside of Washington, DC. So, okay. Thank you guys so much for listening today. I just, I love the way that you guys love your teens. I love that you are passionate about connecting with them and being authentic with them. And that's just super inspiring to me. So thank you for that. So until next time, just remember from an ish girl who loves to dance, especially on Friday nights. And I say that because... You can check out that reference on Instagram because I love dancing on Friday nights in the living room with my guy. I am so grateful to be in the middle of it together.